everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with my bestie. Dr. Shiloh, right? Episode 38. Crazy. That's just so crazy. It is crazy. And today we are offering the ever elusive LA Not So Confidential interview. It happens every once in a while. Once in a blue moon. <laughs> and I think that's the amazing thing is that we get... Well, we're picky and choosy about yeah. who we say, yeah, we'll do an interview for that person. Not that like... Well, people are clamoring to do interviews well, with us. That's not what I meant. <laughs> no, but then again, we did get like something that was only barely related to true crime and forensics. I mean, it was yeah, and it was one that we were like, I don't think that's. Oh bad. right, right, yeah. right. The one that we we said we weren't going to do, but yes, we we choose wisely, I think, and the one that we're bringing you today actually stemmed way back from when we did our Highway Serial Killer episode. And I briefly mentioned this case. And the wonderful individual that we're talking with today reached out to us and said, hey, thanks for the mention. And so we just kept in touch after that because we knew that we absolutely wanted to talk with him. Yeah, this is one of those examples where, okay, somebody reaches out to us and we're like, oh, how cool. Like Mm -hmm. somebody, you know, is acknowledging us. And then you go and you read. You read their bio, and you're like, "Holy, Holy shit. shit!" Right? Like the you know, for, we had Fitz. We you know, we had um, Jen uh, Jen Haley, yeah. and now um, Robert Colker. I right. Mean, that's the big reveal. So, Doctor yeah. Shiloh and I are incredibly honored and excited to have as a guest today on Ellie Not So Confidential, the New York Times best-selling author Robert Colker. His book Lost Girls was named one of the New York Times 100 notable books and one of Publishers Weekly's top 10 books of 2013. Lost Girls is a literary account of the lives and deaths of five Craigslist sex workers whose bodies were found in the Gilgo and Oak Beach areas of Long Island in 2010. But as intrepid young reporter Robert Colker discovered, the truth about these women went far deeper than common assumptions. The victims weren't outcasts, they weren't kidnapped or enslaved, all came from a slice of America ignored by politicians and the media. The poor, often rural and white parts of the country hit hard by economics, where limited opportunities forced people to make hard choices. Choices that led them to places like Gilgo Beach. Robert's prolific work extends far beyond this award-winning novel. His pieces have appeared in New York Magazine, Bloomberg Businessweek, the New York Times Magazine, Wired, GQ, O Magazine, and Men's Journal, often taking the form of reported narratives. His 2006 investigation into the sexual abuse within the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community helped bring an abuser to justice and was nominated for a National Magazine Award. His exploration of an 18-year-old murder exoneration case and the police tactics that can lead to false confessions received the Harry Frank Guggenheim 2011 Excellence in Criminal Justice Reporting Award. By the mid-1970s, six of the ten Galvin boys, one after another, were diagnosed as schizophrenic. What took place on Hidden Valley Road was so extraordinary that the Galvins became one of the first families to be studied by the National Institute of Mental Health. In a tour de force of narrative nonfiction, award-winning journalist Robert Kolker, author of the best-selling Lost Girls, tells the intimate story of the Galvins alongside the epic tale of science's quest to uncover the true nature of a mystifying disease. Of course, Dr. Shiloh and I, as forensic psychologists, also being coming from a solid clinical training background, are fascinated by Robert's upcoming work. In the Galvin family, each mentally ill brother emerges as a whole individual with remarkably different expressions of the same neurological mental health disorder. The Galvin story crests in a breakthrough that, thanks to their unique DNA, offers hope of eliminating schizophrenia forever. Hidden Valley Road is a captivating medical mystery and a heartbreaking drama, but above all, it's an unforgettable lesson in what it means to be a family. Please look for Hidden Valley Road coming from Doubleday Publishers in April 2020, and we're going to be talking to Robert just in a few minutes, but we're so excited to have him back in the future about this particular subject as well. So, thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our interview with Robert Kolker. Well, welcome to LA Not So Confidential. Welcome. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with Dr. Scott. And we are so happy that we have 
author Robert Kolker joining us today. Thanks for being on, Bob. Thank you, guys. It's great to talk to you. Yes, we have um, been in contact for just about a year. So we thank you so much for staying in the loop with us and really trying to figure out what would be perfect timing for us to connect because obviously we've been aware of your work for a long time and it feels like a real natural fit with some of the topics that we've been doing lately. And I feel like even though I've not been directly in contact with you, I've been watching all of your interviews over and over again. So I'm like, oh, I know. I've been talking to Bob for this entire time. <laughs> so what we're going to do is um, we're going to do a little overview of the Long Island serial killer case right now, just to give folks an idea of a timeline, because it can be quite confusing. Um, okay, so we want to give you a good idea of a timeline of these crimes and murders and when this all came to light. So really what kicks this off is when Shannon Gilbert goes missing. And Shannon was a 23-year-old sex worker. And May 1st, 2010, she is really essentially last seen running out into the darkness after leaving a John's house. And she's extremely scared, extremely agitated, can't be calmed down. And both the John and her driver just have zero idea what's happening. And she feel it, it looks like she is just terrified of them. And this happens in, in a very quiet community, a closed off community of, called Oak Beach in Long Island. And that's really what sort of starts unfolding this entire mystery. So later on, you know, December 2010, Suffolk County PD, one of their canine officers, essentially doing some routine training along Ocean Parkway. And this time, Shannon's still missing. Um, but this canine ends up finding four bodies wrapped in burlap along the, the roadway in the marsh area, very, very near Oak Beach. So these four women are really the women that... Um, Robert Kolker is highlighted in his book, and their names are Maureen, Megan, Melissa, and Amber. But with their discovery, the story just got started, definitely did not end there. So I, I think a very interesting piece to this is that it turns out two of those women went missing before Shannon and two went missing after Shannon. So in March and in April of the following year, 2011, four more um, bodies and or remains are found, again, along this stretch of Ocean Parkway. Um, the police end up expanding their search up into Nassau County. Other partial remains are found. There's some link to remains found years earlier in other parts of the state. Finally, in December of 2011, Shannon's remains are found in a marsh about a half a mile from where she disappeared. And really... Up until this point, police have maintained that she drowned and or died from the elements and was not a victim of clearly, you know, what is a serial killer and or killers, depending on who you speak with and what theories are out there. So this is a, a very complicated um, story, and I think there's a lot of angles from which someone who's writing an article or a book about this um, could take. But we really found your take, Bob. Um, very interesting and significant in kind of talking about where true crime is and what we're talking about um, when we do want to tell these stories. Your book, Lost Girls, was released in July of 2013. Um, and so with that whole setup, I want to sort of back up a tad to say, you know, really see as a writer and a journalist, what kind of stories do you feel like you're drawn to and how has that included and or progress progressed to true crime? Thanks. Well, um, and, and thank you again for the chance to talk about the case in this context, because I, I think it's, um, it's the victims of the case who, who really um, quite often in cases like these get overlooked and it's really all we have to look at at the moment in the Long Island serial killer case. And that, that um, that restriction actually winds up helping us understand all uh, this case and other cases like it in a new way. And that's what I appreciated about the, the opportunity to report on this case. 
Um, I had been a, a New York Magazine staff writer for almost 15 years when um, the first four sets of human remains were found on uh, along Ocean Parkway. That was in, in December of 2010. And by that point, I developed a uh, you know, a sort of expertise in crime writing and in narrative nonfiction writing. But the privilege of being at New York Magazine was it was the sort of place where more often than not, the stories I was writing weren't just um, supposed to be yarns that you were spinning uh, to entertain the audience. They also had to have something at stake in the background, whether it was uh, a legal question or um a, an issue uh, of controversy in the forensic psychology world. It, it was always something sort of bubbling in the background. And so as I would be writing these stories, it would be unclear at the beginning whether the story would be about the 90% about the issue and 10% about the case or 90% about the case and 10% about the issue. And that kind of freedom was really, uh, I really appreciated it. There are very few places that really allowed you to get to something slightly deeper as you're reporting on a live news story. Sure. And with sure. this news story, there, it was anybody's guess how to report on it. I mean, I was one guy at one magazine, and um, when those first four women's remains were found along Ocean Parkway, nobody knew about Shannon Gilbert and how she was still missing. And once it became clear that she was still missing and that they thought there might be a fifth victim, and... Uh, Every news outlet was descending onto Oak Beach to report on the case. It, I thought to myself, what on what on earth could I possibly have to contribute here? I mean, I had no sources in the Suffolk County Police Department at the time. I worked in Manhattan. Um, you weren't and, you weren't uh, Nas- you weren't Nancy Grace <laughs> at the time. Exactly. It was all over it, right? <laughs> right. But the other thing I thought was just to take readers back to that time. This was about. If I recall, I think it was about 18 months or maybe maybe even less uh, since the Craigslist killer case up mm-hmm. in New England. Oh, right. Where um, where they had solved the mystery very quickly just by tracing the digital trail of the uh, of the guy who hired the victim. Um, they found him right away. And so the first thing I thought when when I heard about those four sets of remains was, well, they're going to find this guy four times as fast as they found the last one. Because it's four different women with four digital trails, sure. and they'll just, you know, they'll sew this up completely. I really thought that by the time I got in the car, uh, the and made it halfway out there, the mystery would be solved, and and that was, of course, the complete opposite of what happened. There was no solution to this mystery, and um, then there, there was another assumption I made that turned out to be completely wrong, which was that that we would never learn who those four women were. The police said they were female and that they were presumed to be escorts. And immediately what I thought of was the what we know, it, it, what we see in the popular culture about about victims and crimes like this. They're sort of the extras or the plot devices in the drama where you're hunting for the serial killer. Absolutely. You'll, you'll never know their names. They were trafficked from another place and another world. They've been off the grid for years, addicted to drugs, divorced from their families. And that turned out to be completely the opposite of reality too. These women were identified um, within a month and their families were notified. And it turned out their families had been close in close touch with these women up until the minute they disappeared. All right. of them, without exception, all four of them. So and Shannon was the same way. She had just been on the phone with her mother a few hours before she disappeared. She had been texting her. So, um, Bob, I was going to jump. A, I wanted to jump call. in and ask you, I, I think that that's, a fascinating perspective you just offered us on your assumptions about how quickly it was going to be resolved because of the digital trail that was left by the Craigslist killer. I, I I remember in the, I think it was the third episode of the documentary. They talk about the A&E documentary. Yes. The A&E documentary. One of the things that's commented on is that many of these women were, pretty facile with having multiple uh, cell phones, multiple numbers and in order to protect themselves legally so that they couldn't be traced by the police. Do you think that that had anything to do with making this more complex? Yes. I mean, I think with some of these women, they had left their phones at home. And so the police had access to whatever phones they thought 
they owned, but but the women owned more than one phone. So who knows? Okay. Uh, who who and when they were talking to someone? And presumably, and again, the police haven't given us information. Presumably, the police have, you know, looked up at least some of the Johns who show up on their phones. But um, but that apparently has led nowhere. I mean, it's been seven years. So that it, you know, since the book came out, and even longer since their bodies were found. But um, the other issue here is that um, Craigslist and Backpage were kind of low-tech ways to hire an escort. You you go on the website, you scroll, and you never click. You you just see someone's picture and see what they write, and you see their phone number, and then you just call the phone number on your phone. So there's really nothing on your computer except the fact that you've been scrolling on Craigslist in that category to, right. to demonstrate that you uh, have a digital trail. So that end of it is kind of a dead end as well. Absolutely. So do you, part one of your book is dedicated really to telling the stories of these women who became victims and not only telling their stories, but you're telling the stories of their mothers. And what, why was it important for you to go back a couple of generations really for some of these women in order to shape how your audience was going to view them? Well, there are some true crime books that I would count among my favorites that are not whodunits. They, they are more portraits of a, of a world where crime takes place, but that it, it's in the backdrop of a, a sociological issue or question. David Simon's really good at this. Um, in the books that he wrote or co-wrote before he made The Wire, Homicide and The Corner. And then there's Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, who wrote a book called Random Family, where she spent 10 years with welfare mothers in the Bronx. They were married to drug dealers or not married. They were having kids with them. They, they were, uh, there was criminality going on all the time. It was sort of a life in the underworld, but it was through the eyes of these women. And that was a huge influence on me. And then there's... Um, there are no children here, which is a very famous book by Alex Kotlowitz, which, which followed two boys growing up in the projects in Chicago, uh, getting in and out of trouble, but also trying to to have a life, and and I thought that's the sort of book that I would like to write one day, a book that sort of lifts the veil on a part of society that most readers don't get to see, and sort of helps you understand the context of of something that you really might have waved off or discounted before, and. As soon as I got to know these family members and saw how no one had been paying attention to them since their loved one disappeared, I knew that those stories were worth telling. I mean, the, just to, for instance, there's Maureen Brainerd Barnes from Connecticut. She disappeared in 2007. That's three years before her remains were found. Hmm. It took two of those years for her family to even get Maureen's name on the National Registry of Missing Persons. Wow. No cop really cared enough to make that happen for them. They all assumed that uh, she had just sort of fallen off the grid. Was that? Wow. Only when it became part of some larger serial killer case, and it felt like a an episode of SVU, did the world care? Did the police start, snap into action? And and that I thought was something that you know I could really shine a light on in a book like this. Absolutely. So that's the, the, to answer your question, that's why I wanted to learn the family stories. You would get to know them, get to know the women, help, un, help the reader understand, not necessarily uh, agree with every decision that the women made, but see their rationale and understand how, for them, escorting actually was solving all of their problems until, of course, it created more problems for them. Right, right. Um, I know you really give us a a great view into how prevalent the drug use is. You know, I think I think back to when you're talking about the one escort company that a couple of the girls worked for and just the progression of it going from a little bit of a party favor or, you know, to give them some... Um, just a boost to get through the night. Yeah, boost the night, to get through the know. night and just how debilitating it became. Um, it, I, I don't know. I think this is more just a comment of highlighting like how well that was done. But then it also, I know for Dr. Scott and I and, and our work that we've seen with 
individuals with comorbid disorders like substance abuse and possibly, you know, mood disorder, psychotic disorder, of how that could play out very much in like what Shannon was exhibiting that night. Um, it, you know, it, it lends to the information just of what happened here and that the drug re- drug use is really prevalent and it could be a huge factor in no matter how much you protect yourself by having, you know, different phones or having a driver that that really is going to put someone in danger. And I, I really, really, really liked your development of the profiles of these victims and you state the facts of the drug use, but it doesn't become the main part of the narrative. And I think that's so valuable because even though we're talking about it being a a vital part, probably, especially in Shannon's death, I mean, our, our perspective is because we work with, we have worked with individuals with significant substance use issues, but I like how that didn't have to take front and center in your book so that we really get a more human feel of each of the victims. I thought that was just really well done. Thanks. Yeah, it was a that was another awakening for me, another another assumption that was wiped away by reporting on this case. I you know, when I thought about escorts who might be targeted by a by violence, I would think, well, they were drug addicts and so they became escorts in order to, you know, help get drugs. But it turns out it's the other way around. Right. They, they turned to escorting as a means of social mobility. Like they looked at at the problems in their lives, the financial anxieties they had, and they saw people working three jobs at the Walmart and the Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, the Lowe's. And then they looked at a, at their phones and they saw that they could post an ad and they could make as much money in a week as their, or in, as their friends were making in a month. Sure. And, and then the drugs come later, in, in, at least in the cases uh, that I wrote about. Um, I wonder in your work if that's what you guys have seen as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I would agree, but I, I wanted to just jump back to what something you just said, which I think is so vital. You, using the term social mobility is so integral to this entire story and this particular population of women and men who work in sex work is that like you're saying, instead of working, you know, just barely scraping by in these minimum wage jobs um, to see this opportunity to triple, quadruple that in so much less time, while that quickly becomes an option for people, they may not necessarily be prepared. You know, there's an evolution that happens as, as you, you know, maybe your career moves up, even if it's blue collar versus white collar, as you make slowly more money, you adjust to that and you learn how to be responsible. It almost, I, I can't help but wonder that in some way, these women were like sort of in the position of lottery winners who suddenly have just access to all this cash but don't really know how to manage it. Because one of the things that you describe in the book is like the immediately like this, the self gratification of the shopping trips, because these, this allowed these young women to, you know, treat themselves and buy things for themselves that they never had that option before because they didn't have access to that kind of money. So that was another uh, structural point that I found really helpful in your book. Um, But, and then jumping back to, the the drug issue is that in so many of the cases that Shiloh, I mean, even when you were in law enforcement, you mm-hmm. would see this. When I work strictly in community mental health, um, we would see this where, especially when you talk about crystal meth, it literally changes people's personality and so much more rapidly than any other substance. And it, it now it's not necessarily in, in the multiple YouTube documentaries and the A&E documentary and your book, you mentioned sort of a, a, a spectrum of drugs. But do you have any sense of like what the percentages was? Was it it seems like it was more stimulants than anything else, which would, of course, be cocaine and crystal meth and maybe some others. But did you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, at the the function of the drugs for, for, for some of them was to, was to be able to keep working. So yeah, cocaine was in there, but then I think there was an escapist element to the drugs as well too, to sort of check out. It seems like Shannon drank a lot and, um, 
and certainly, you know, and Amber had a heroin addiction at the end. Um, just sort of, you know, divorce yourself from from any of the the troubles in your life. Right. So I think it was from my, from my small sample set. You know, there's a, you know, those seem to be the the things motivating the drug use. Do you have any? idea of whether or not when Shannon's remains were found, there was any way to do any kind of talk screen on her remains to determine what had been most recently in her system? Well, she had been out in the elements for 18 months before they found her. So um, whatever talk screen they did was hampered by time and by exposure. Okay. They, they, They found no evidence of anything. Um, but then they also didn't test for everything either. Is that correct? Is that what I beg your pardon? I I believe, um, I thought her mother had said that they also didn't test for everything. Right. It's true. The, um, so that was a a suspicious sort of screen was very, the screen was limited. Um, they, first of all, they couldn't really test for alcohol. My understanding is alcohol is the the first thing to, to disappear from. Right physical evidence from remains but then um they checked for cocaine but they didn't check for anything else that's my you know off the top of my head what i remember at any rate yes it was they did kind of a um a limited work on on her remains and the reason for that if there is a reason beyond incompetence is that they had at that point assumed that shannon wasn't linked to the other victims that Quite coincidentally, she had died accidentally uh, while the killer was killing other women. Right. Um, and we can we can debate whether or not that's true or not. But what it meant was that the um, the the autopsy really wasn't as extensive as it might have been. Mm. At such a loss, uh, I mean, I think one of the the things that brought that up for Shiloh and I is. You know, going back to that example of a overuse of a stimulant is really one of the quickest ways to push someone into a bipolar break if they have a propensity or already have an existing diagnosis for bipolar disorder, or if you have absolutely no impairment but you use enough stimulants, you can have a brief psychotic break, which certainly, you know, it just sounded so familiar to the description of her really becoming just scared and terrified hiding and, and behind the couch. hiding behind the couch and paranoid that she was being um, that they were trying to kill her. And then the long, the long nine one one call, which the audio has not been released of that. Right. Right? right. So, I mean, although that's, I guess why we're asking if there was any additional information about particular substances, because that, that particular picture, the way it's, it's painted in the documentaries and in the book, it feels like, a substance-induced psychotic disorder is yeah. what we would call it. Bob, do you share a public opinion about what you think happened with Shannon? Um, the two possibilities are exactly as you painted. It could be exactly what Dr. Scott just described, a psychotic break um, that's been triggered, but that, sh- that, that she was vulnerable to having for a long time. Or she could have been legitimately terrified for her life by something that the John had done or something else that had happened in the John's house. And then she, she went running convinced that people were trying to kill her. Right. Or a combination um, of those two. (laughs) Yeah. Or a combination of those two. The one thing that I, that I really been saying publicly about this case is that there are a lot of neighbors who would know a lot more than what they're saying about what they saw that night. Because the weirdest thing about Shannon's disappearance is that she went knocking on doors and screaming throughout the neighborhood and we know for a fact that many neighbors saw her but then uh at a certain point the information about what happens to her completely stops and the next thing you know they find her 18 months later not so far from where she was last seen in the in the depths of a marsh that was right next to the street where she was last seen and so the question is you know what what did they see that they aren't talking about because nobody says I saw her wadding into the marsh and yet everybody was presumably talking to one another and responding to what was going on that morning. In particular, there's a local doctor who everybody called whenever there was the slightest bit of emergency. If anybody had a hangnail on Oak Beach, they called this doctor 
Shannon was screaming right around the corner from his house. The neighbors who we know saw her were good friends of his. He was in town. He apparently called Shannon's mother within days of her disappearance. Everything points to him knowing more about what happened to her that morning. But uh, he claims not to have seen her at all. Yeah, do- Even so though he, he told his mother something different, but but, but he claims that right. Like Doc- con- Doctor Hackett is probably the most interesting and disturbing character to me in this entire. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if he's a, a a red herring and an easy character to sort of um, you know have all of these suspicions and have sort of weave these wild stories about because he is such an interesting sensation seeker, compulsive liar, whatever we want to call him. Um, but yeah, to, to me, I, man, that's just one piece that I would love to dive more into. And there was, I think there was in the A&E documentary, there were several people that commented that exact thing, same thing that he was someone that wanted to be at the center of attention or wanted to be in the middle of, mm-hmm. of things. Um, well, and you sat down with him, right, Bob? I did. I, I talked with him personally just a day or two before Shannon's remains were found. Oh, right? wow. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, it was peculiar speaking with him because he had already admitted uh, to having given the wrong information to the press earlier about when he talked to Shannon Gilbert's mother, mm-hmm. whether he called her at all. He, he admitted that he wasn't telling the truth about that. And then when I sat down and talked to him, he told the same falsehood again until I corrected him and said, but you just told uh, CBS News the opposite. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I did. So it was he, I was definitely talking with somebody who, who was sort of a natural dissembler. And that's something that I had heard about him oh. from neighbors and even friends saying who, who were fond of him but said that he liked to tell stories sure um what what was less clear in talking to him whether it was you know whether i was talking to a killer or 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 not and it, it, it's a certainly i'm not qualified to make that judgment as a reporter but also um i'm reminded of the many instances in which you know that assumption turns out to be wrong i'm absolutely. thinking about richard yes. Jewell, for instance absolutely so, absolutely yeah so so it's possible that he just is a, the kind of guy who inserts himself into what's going on around him and becomes a focal point of attention without actually having really anything to do with it sure sure um, both that, are as likely. And, and we just don't know yeah. So I wanted to ask you, this is something that I, I couldn't find in the materials um, that I had been reading and watching was, so aside from Shannon, that doesn't fit the the profile of the other bodies that were found so much, um, the individuals who were wrapped in burlap or even the ones that, you know, the I, I guess for a visual, we're thinking of it's the middle of the night, a car pulls up. Someone gets out, they unload the wrapped body from the car, and then they just start walking into the marsh. Is there any theory or observation or ideas about where that individual would have entered the marsh from? Or were they just basically stopping on the side of the road, wherever, walking straight into the marsh, dropping the victim and then heading back to their car or are there entrances that you have to use in order to even get into that thicket i think they were getting back in their car and driving away um the the, there are people who say you know that on the other side of that marsh is a body of water is you know the long island sound and that maybe the guy's a clamor or is a boater of some sort which might explain the burlap issue as well and that and that they, the, the killer accessed it that way. To me, the simplest explanation, particularly since those first four women were pretty near um, the edge of the bramble and not really far from the shoulder of the highway, okay. was that the person in the middle of the night pulled over, dropped a body, drove another tenth of a mile and did it three more times and then just kept on going. Um, it's a very straight highway and it's pretty desolate. It, this is not like the Long Island Expressway where there's always a million cars on it. You, you know when you're alone on this highway because it's a straight shot and you can see headlights coming from miles away. 
so he he would know whether it's safe to pull over and 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 toss remains aside and keep going okay yeah this case i I think for me as i was doing a little bit more prep last night i opened up google maps and being so far away you really have this idea of you want to be on the ground and see what it looks like for all of these these reasons that we just asked to sort of help us think about how this could actually play out, which helps us, you know, think that we know who that is then, because, you know, it, is this a roadway in which truckers, you know, long haul truckers drive down? I don't know, but I know that's also been theorized. Um, but whenever we talk about a place and wanting to know what it's like, what we're really asking ourselves is who is the person responsible for this and how could they have done this? Um, it's weird. It's weird because it's a four lane divided highway, but it uh-huh. really is a local road. Okay. You you would use it to access, you know, the the South Shore communities of Long Island, which include like the Hamptons, so right. you know, where Jerry Seinfeld has a place or whatever. But but it's not as far out as there, and so, you know, Manhattanites might know it as, uh, or, or New Yorkers who have a car might know it as what they drive through to get to the Hamptons. Okay. And they, they might even be surprised to hear that there are homes along the highway because you can't really see them. I see. Or that there are local beaches like Oak Beach you know, or Cedar Beach or Gilgo Beach. Th- th- those were things that, you know, I'd been in New York for 20 years. I hadn't heard of those places um, because you don't stop along that highway. So it's it's weird. It's both um, a big road but also desolate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So... Very recently, within the last couple of weeks, the Suffolk County Police Department um, held a press conference and they released photos of a belt. Um, they're not they're the, really the photo is kind of the only thing that they released. There wasn't a ton of information, whether where they found it, what time, um, it, really nothing to give us how this fits into the investigation. Um what are your thoughts on the timing of the press conference and what do you make of the evidence? Because this, this press conference was also the same day that the trailer for the film Lost Girls was dropped. So I'm interested to know your thoughts. I think that it was a tactical decision to have that press conference and to announce the belt. And I don't mean that in a negative way necessarily. I, I just think that, um, it does a couple of things to let people know about that belt. The the first is that the thing that I think people need to know is that they have had the belt for years. And so they're, they're making the decision to go public with it now, perhaps because they're at a dead end and they think that they're, they actually might lead to something, but also perhaps that they want to send a message that they are still actively pursuing the killer. And it's very possible that they're trying to look busy because they know a movie is coming. Although, I'm not sure if they necessarily knew that the trailer was coming that exact day, but that would be pretty savvy. Of <laughs> yeah, them. it sure would. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a mixture of it all because, you know, goodness knows they, they they need to continue to be taking action. And so no matter what the reason, it, it's a it's a good thing that they're out there and trying to, um, you know, get attention for the case. And perhaps even this lead might lead to something. It's a little it's a little dispiriting that they would sit on something like this for nine years without before making the decision to 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 check around and go public with it but you know in the night before when they announced that they were going to have a press conference i immediately thought of the last time this happened when they you know produced a little another piece of physical evidence to try to identify an unidentified victim and i thought well maybe that's what this will be and it turned out it was it was something like that. Yeah. So the the belt we're speaking about, the investigators believe it to belong to the suspect, and it is embossed with two letters. With depending on which way you hold up the belt, either looks like W H or H M. So, it, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you look at the photos, it's could be incredibly identifiable, and to think they're sitting on it for you know who knows nine years or so um i'm glad that they did i hope it does reveal something but it it seems like it's been very tight-lipped on what to release but when you have a case that's been going on 
for so long, you have to take a few risks here and there and release something to generate interest. So, you know, I was going to ask, you know, in in reviewing the materials, it looks they really um, in the any documentary put a lot of emphasis on the conflict between the various investigators, uh, certainly the, the chief of police and the DA and the DA who, and they make a point of saying that both of them were, um, represent, you know, they were both from different political parties and they kind of used that. They were sort of positioning themselves against each other in order to bolster their ability to get reelected. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, has, has any of that resolved in the years that have passed is, is at least, for whatever is not being spoken about, do you get in a sense that everybody's on the same page? Whether whether they're moving quickly or efficiently or not, are they still on this? Are they just on the same page of working together? Yeah, the, the landscape has changed over there. I mean, but but historically, the Suffolk County Police has had you know real corruption problems in the distant past and in, and during the period that this case broke. There was one. Um, senior member of the department who kept rising in the ranks named James Burke, who ended up being put in prison by the feds. Uh, he was corrupt and also violent and, you know, beat up a suspect. And th- that, that would be, you know, that would seem run of the mill if not for the fact that the DA was also protecting him and keeping that information private. Oh, and wow. the DA eventually went down because of that as well. He, he went out of office. So there's no, that DA is no longer around. James Burke is no longer around. There is a new police commissioner. In fact, there are several new police commissioners. Perhaps I should have mentioned when we were talking about the belt, Geraldine Hart is the new police commissioner of the Suffolk County Police Department. And it's possible that this press conference happened because she wanted to do something different from what her predecessors did, saying, you know, well, you know, I don't know why they didn't go public with the belt, but we should go public with the belt. Okay. So, you know, maybe maybe it's just a fresh set of eyes being put on the case. Um, but it the 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 real the real big thing that I think your listeners should take away from all this talk of corruption in Suffolk County is that for many many years the FBI was really at arm's length on this case. They they offered a little bit of technical assistance early on, but that was it. And what a lot of people suspect, and in one news report even suggested, is that it was the it was the corruption. It was James Burke who kept the feds away mm. because he didn't want them seeing what he was up to. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's a would be a tremendous tragedy if that were true. It is. It has always been a mystery why the FBI wasn't involved sooner. This definitely involves cases that go across state lines. A lot of these women are from other places. You know, it seems like a natural for them. And uh, that that to me is a real tragedy. That absolutely is, and fascinating. Now I want to now I want to even deeper dive into that particular phenomenon. So thank you for explaining that bit. Do you know if in more recent years, if the FBI has been able to offer consultation work from their behavioral analysis unit? Yes, Geraldine Hart's immediate predecessor, a fellow named Sini, he brought the FBI in. So the FBI has been um, helping apparently, for at least a year or two. Great, great. Well, so speaking of the film, um, the book Lost Girls has been adapted into a film um, directed by Liz Garbus, who just had tremendous success with Who Killed Garrett Phillips on HBO and is known for being a documentarian. Um, Premiered at Sundance this past week. Were you able to be there for that? I was. Netflix was nice enough to invite me, and I went. What was that like? Yeah. It was fun. I took part in the Q&A afterward. People had questions about the case, so I answered one question. But, <laughs> but, they, but what was exciting was to, to see, you know, the film, you know, well, Liz is wonderful, but to see the entire cast so invested in this case and so hopeful that it might lead to public attention um, and perhaps even to movement in the case. I mean, one thing they kept that, that um, I know Liz has been talking about is the late Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, you know, how, how that book came out about the Golden State Killer and how the visibility about the case that she brought to it both before and when the book was published, suddenly, you know, shortly after the book was published, they had an arrest and a conviction in sure. that case. And so she was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if 
you know, whether it was the belt or whether it was anything else, you know, this, this movie helping to raise attention might lead to some movements in this case. Oh, we can. And that, of course, hope, I think yeah. everyone hopes that. So there was it, it's, a, of course, a very you know, sad movie. It, it matches the tone of the book in many ways, which I'm really very grateful for. It talks about the issues surrounding these women's lives and their families' lives. And that, I think, is is, um, you know, something I'm extraordinarily grateful for. But also there was hope at the screening that perhaps, you know, now that we're all paying attention, something more can happen for these um, for these victims. Well, it just seems like the zeitgeist is shifting over the last few years that we're finally really, really looking at what a problem this is across the board. I mean, Shiloh and I have talked about indigenous women who continue to disappear at incredibly high rates and they are that you know that population is marginalized because they're not it's just because it's just not thought of as important to figure this out in the same way that um you know you we see over and over again you know especially in this case that law enforcement marginalized these sex workers and you know like you were saying kind of shrugged their shoulders oh well they just decided to drop off the the radar for a while or or that's what they do just making a lot of assumptions about each of these victims Yes, and Killing Season, the A&E documentary series that you guys mentioned earlier, that they did a good job with this too, talking about um, truck stop victims right. and, and just how there might be a whole unreported trend of, of missing people who are actually serial killer victims. Absolutely. And, and they make this very strong case that this is a whole, there's a whole cohort of society that law enforcement is just overlooking and that we as a society are just overlooking. Yeah. Absolutely. So the the film is going to premiere on Netflix March 13th. Um, I'm very yeah. excited for it. I think seeing Amy Ryan in this role as uh, Shannon Gilbert's mom, Mary, is just such a – I'm just so interested to see that because she's so great. I'm used to seeing her in something light yes. like The Office. <laughs> um, I wanted to get your thoughts in speaking about Mary Gilbert and – her death in 2016 she died at the hands of another daughter sarah gilbert um who clearly had a lot of mental health issues going on and she was eventually convicted of second degree murder but you know how did that impact you because i know with all of these women's families you you really spent a good deal of time with them i mean it had to be incredibly shocking, but also um, what was it like just hearing that news? It was horrible. I mean, it was just horrible to hear. I mean, Mary was, I would describe her as one of the most dynamic people I've ever met. And certainly among the people who I, who I interviewed for this book, that she was the, you know, the loudest, the most unpredictable and also the most productive in terms of getting public attention brought to this case. And it, and when the, the folks who optioned the book discussed the possibility of making this a movie about her, I, I thought I had two reactions. The first was I never would have thought of that in a million years. And the second was what a great idea because um, she really helps, you know, bring together all the issues of the book and, and helps sort of personify all the struggles that all the families had. But, well, but in the, reporting the book, I really was talking to her and also to her her daughter, Cherie. She had four daughters in all, including Shannon, and Cherie was the one I really talked to. Sarah, who who um, developed schizophrenia and ended up murdering her, um, was someone who I would see in the background, but I didn't really talk to at all because she was keeping to herself. But apparently in the years after um, Shannon's body was found, she... Um, started to have a series of psychotic breaks and became really dependent on Mary and on the rest of her family. And it was uh, during one of those psychotic breaks that she ended up killing Mary. But what I learned after Mary's death was that Mary had really spent the last three or so years of her life since Shannon's remains were found. She, she really spent it doing two things. And the first was fighting on behalf of Shannon to get, uh, Shannon's case recognized as a homicide to, you know, help bring more attention to the case, to try to solve the broader mystery. And then the second thing she did was really spent her time trying to help Sarah 
um, taking care of Sarah's child when Sarah couldn't, you know, helping her in and out of hospitals. Which is an and, incredibly and so, stressful experience for a, a parent of an adult child with mental illness. Is just people. A lot of people just don't understand how much work that is. Right, and and you, of course, Sarah, like a lot of people, was not staying on her meds necessarily. She had an injectable. She had Haldol that she was supposed to take every four weeks, and at the end, she hadn't taken it. Um, so it, it her storyline sort of follows the storyline of a lot of people who who decline in mental illness because they have trouble with compliance and um and the worst possible thing happened you know yet again so it, it's just mm -hmm. um astonishing even to think about it, it is. i do end up writing about it uh there's an extra chapter and afterward to lost girls in the latest edition that sort of turns the lens on mary a little bit and on her final years because i thought uh you know, she certainly deserves the attention and also perhaps people who see the movie might want to know more about what happened to Mary at the end. I think that's a, a great way to sort of um, pair all of that up. Thank you for, for giving us a little bit more insight into what she was like one-on-one. -on -one, and I'm so happy this film is going to be able to highlight her strengths and all the work that she's done for all these women. So, you have a new book coming out in April of this year. It's called Hidden Valley Road. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, this this book is another family saga. Um, instead of being about five families, it's about one, and it's a it's a family who you know their children were in the baby boom. They were born in the late forties through the through the early sixties. They had twelve children, and six of them developed schizophrenia. Um, at a time where most people were denying that, that, that their kids had mental illness and when there was too large of a stigma to really seek out help. And so the family experienced, you know, a lot of tragedy. And then they became studied by the National Institute of Mental Health and by more than one pharmaceutical company and by a university in Colorado. All people who are trying to isolate the genetic uh, roots of schizophrenia. Um, and so the family sort of becomes a, 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 a test for trying to cure the disease and also the story of the way that we understand mental illness in the United States toward the end of the 20th century. But mostly it's a family saga. Um, what makes it, I think, a helpful book and an interesting book is that I was able to interview absolutely everybody in the family who is still alive. Wow. Get everyone's perspective. That's amazing. Um, most of the time when people read books about mental illness, they're memoirs of one person's struggle or of their, their, you know, talking about their uncle or their mother. Whereas here you have, you know, sort of everybody in the family talking about it, both sick and well. Well, that is right up our alley. <laughs> that is, sounds so incredible. I cannot fascinating. wait. Yeah. So um, we'll be sure to, to look for that in the spring when it comes out. Um, so it, I just want to let folks at home know as we're wrapping up here that you can find all of Bob's works and um, further information on his website, which is robertkolker.com. And then you're on Twitter and Instagram at bobkolker.com, correct? I'm sorry, just that, Bob Kolker, not, not a .com at the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I um, Perhaps I should make it easier, but yeah, I'm robertkolker.com on the on the internet and then Bob Kolker on Twitter. Oh, you're, you're, you're easy to find. So, um, well, this has been great. We, can I ask him one question? Oh, yeah. Please. No, no, I'm just it. like, this just get popped up. And, and I, if you have an answer to it, I, I'm just wondering what your feelings are with this particular case and other cases that are increasingly becoming crowdsourced. You know, one of the examples that's sort of in the milieu right now is Don't Fuck With Cats, the documentary where really the identity of the killer and the tracking of the killer was was performed and, and executed by a number of people working in tandem from around the world, you know, just accessing open source databases. And, you know, what are, what are your feelings about that? And or do you do you see any problems with that? That's a wonderful question. Um, and um, in the case of the Long Island serial killer, there were 
a million armchair detectives all sort of doing work and a lot of them communicating together mainly on web sleuths. And there were a couple of theories of the case that really held sway for a long time. And I was working on the book for a while, you know, for a year or more. And so I was paying close attention to what was happening on the Internet as people were researching the case. And I would start to see lots of different trends happen. First of all, I would see newcomers coming in who would ask the same questions that were asked six months ago. And then the people who had been at this for six months would get impatient and angry with them. And so there was a lot of there's a lot of knowledge on the Internet. There's a lot of you know, it's not like everybody gets together like a CSI episode and solves the mystery in 10 seconds. There's a lot of mixed signals, a lot of people who are are um, who don't understand something that everybody else understands, and then they end up making stupid theories, and then those stupid theories get picked up by other people and warped. And then also there's a lot of misinformation that gets accepted as fact, and, and nobody has really acted to confirm it. So those are the problems with it. But of course, the, the good things about it is that there are people who are are able to access public information and really, you know, come up with perspectives that nobody else has that really help lead to an understanding of the case. In terms of Oak Beach and, and this case, there's there was a lot of look, a lot of looking at the weather and a lot of aerial maps, a lot of physical uh, data that was, you know, from the internet and a lot of a lot of great information came from that. Oh, so it's a mixed yeah. bag. I yeah, it seems like it. It seems like it's yeah. it's both. It's the it's really both extremes. On one hand, you can get really kind of amazing information from people who were doing a deep dive in one particular area. But you really helped me understand because I just always thought about people giving making incorrect assumptions. But I, I you know, you've illuminated about that sort of the hierarchy that happens within these groups where the old guard has been there for months and they know everything, you know, backwards and forwards. And then a noob comes in and misinterprets something, but then creates that misinterpretation has its own life that can then get in the way of the real investigation. So thank you for illuminating that. Yeah. And it happens over and over again. You know, let's say a year ago, somebody says, hey, guys, look at this. And then everybody takes three months talking about it. And at the end of the three months, everybody who's talking about it agrees that it's nothing. And then a year later, somebody new will pop up and go, hey, guys, what about this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect way to, to, to visualize it. Thank you. But they're also the people that have the luxury of time that, you know, maybe a detective doesn't have. Yep. And if you have someone coming home and jumping on their computer and just diving into it, it I'm. I go back and forth as well. I'm. I'm all for it in some aspects, and others. I. I see how it could run down a really um, sort of wicked rabbit hole, and you know, like with the Delphi case, people throwing up pictures of people alongside the sketch, and it's like, whoa, let's not be naming and throwing pictures up on exactly. the internet. Um, such interesting stuff. Um, Bob, we want to thank you so very much for just giving us really some personal insight into your journey and this case that I think it, it's wonderful that it's going to be back in the spotlight and, and highlighting the importance of everything, the, vic- the direct victims, the indirect victims, and that there's still a lot of of work to do, but we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you both for your interest in, in this case and for the chance to talk about it. Absolutely. And we can't wait to see you. We'll see you in what, two months? Where? Aren't we, is it at CrimeCon? Are you going to CrimeCon, Bob? Oh, I don't think I am. Okay. 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 Sounds good. Well, hopefully we can um, meet in person one day. We're trying to get ourselves to New York for our some things feels like we're going everywhere else but new york this year but um well thank you so much for the interview and for our audience we will talk to you next time on la not so confidential thanks guys bye-bye